In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the Ark of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live a Catholic faith in our modern world of today. Today, I brought in my good friend, Father Stephen Hill, to discuss the topic of the ordinariate. Now, thank you for being with me, Father. Thank you, George. Good to be here. Yes, it's great to have you here. And uh, as a regular attendee of the ordinariate myself, I've come to appreciate and love the spirituality, especially of the liturgy there, and and uh, just introduce yourself to our listeners, for those who don't know you, haven't already uh, read your great articles in the Catholic Weekly of Sydney. Thanks, George. Yeah, so I'm the, the parish priest of the Ordinariate Parish of St. Bede the Venerable, um, based here in Sydney, and we worship at St. Joseph's Newtown, which is a absolutely gorgeous church of the English um, style, a Gothic revival, and I'm also the administrator of the parish of St. Joseph at Newtown in the Archdiocese of Sydney. Excellent. And uh, how long have you been there, Father? Uh, I arrived here just in time for COVID. Excellent. So that was my, that was my welcoming present to the parish. <laughs> and uh, there's fairly a lot of young people at the parish uh, um, and in Many people, I think, over the years have come to learn about the ordinariate, but let, it takes us to our first question. What is the actual ordinariate that people hear about or the Anglican ordinariate or uh, as, as some people may call it or uh, the, uh, the Anglican use of the Roman rite? I mean, many terms going around here. So I just want you to clarify, what is the ordinariate? Yeah, and I think that's probably part of the reason why there can be a bit of confusion out there because there are... Uh, some terms out there. And it's also probably important to remember too that there are actually two ordinariates in the Catholic Church within Australia. So there is there is the military ordinariate and then there's the ordinariate of Our Lady of the Southern Cross, which is, is what we are. Now, sometimes people, you know, colloquially call us the Anglican ordinariate, um, which is really a little bit deceiving because the Anglican Church doesn't have an ordinariate. Um, we're Catholic. So, so that, that does confuse people. So we don't really like to use that phrase, uh, Anglican ordinariate, because it does confuse people. But um, we do need to explain to people that part of our fundamental charism is the English tradition or the English way of, of being Catholic. So I guess that question, 
you know, what is the ordinariate is, is a very sort of open-ended question that can be um, approached in a lot of ways. Um, I would say that first and fundamentally, the ordinary is an evangelical movement because that's what the church is for. So our mission is, is evangelism and we have been created as an evangelical movement within the church to, to aid the church in bringing people to know and follow Jesus. I guess from a canon law point of view, you'd say that what the ordinary is, is it's juridically equivalent to a diocese. So it's like a, a non-geographical diocese. Um, so the, the particular law that actually establishes us says that we are juridically equivalent to a diocese. So all of those things that, that a diocese is, we are as well, except that we are not geographical. So people belong to the ordinariate because they are a, a particular you know, type of person, either um, they, they are a former Anglican or they've been born into the ordinariate or they, their faith has really been nurtured uh, and grown within the ordinariate. So the ordinariate for them becomes their home. So there you see that. Uh, evangelical uh, nature of what the ordinary is all about and uh, it's led by um, an ordinary every diocese actually has an ordinary so here in the archdiocese of sydney the ordinary of the archdiocese of sydney is is the archbishop archbishop anthony um, but people don't go around and say hi ordinary anthony because it sounds kind of weird doesn't it um, <laughs> but he is the ordinary but people just know him as the archbishop so in the ordinariate, the, the leader of the ordinariate can be a bishop or can be a priest. So in our case, uh, our ordinary is, is Monsignor Carl Reed, and he is a priest, and he has all the jurisdiction that a bishop has in terms of being in charge of a, a diocese. However, he's not actually a bishop. So kind of like getting into technicalities of canon law, which I know does people's head in a bit sometimes, but- They interest uh, me. <laughs> this, this precision <laughs> sure. of, yeah, this, this precision of, you know, understanding the way that things work within the church. But it all points back. I mean, the whole ordinary point has Anglican identity, or is, is that the wrong term to use? Or Anglican patrimony? Because uh, it, was made, it was established for those who don't know uh, with the Apostolic Constitution, Anglicanorum coatibus. Co co I don't know how, I don't, I don't know if I pronounce it. Catibus. Yes, there you go. It's the E. I've got to emphasize it there. But uh, uh, in 2011, am I right, by Pope Benedict XVI, who opened a way for Anglicans petitioning to become Catholic um, and, and keep some of their Anglican traditional English spirituality, but become Catholic. Just like you have many other rites in the church, especially the Latin rite, there are you know the, both forms of the Roman rite, the Dominican rite, and there's other Eastern churches. They can have their own liturgy, um, uh, which is derived from the Sarum rite. I don't know if I've gone too far there. <laughs> yeah, so so that's a really good point that you make, George, is in recognizing that the church, uh, for a very very long time, has been a plurality of rites, and then within those rights, you have different variations of those rights. And those rights often develop historically over time. So um, the Roman right is, is in, in the West, what most Catholics belong to is, is the Roman right. And the ordinary at our liturgy is an expression of the Roman right because the Anglican church came out of 
the Latin or the Roman Rite. So um, the serum use was a form of the Roman Rite. And if you do a side-by-side -side comparison of serum against the Roman Rite, most of it's the same. Um, the, the Eucharistic prayer, for example, is the Roman canon. Um, with just a, there's a few variations here and there in the right, but but serum is 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 an expression of the Roman right. So, the liturgy of uh, Anglicanism, if you like, um, has always been within that that family of the Roman right. So we are not a we're not a separate right. We are we are part of the Roman right. But I guess in terms of the history, I'd I'd like to see us in terms of being part of a a trajectory of history. Because anyone who's studied English Reformation history knows just how incredibly complicated it is. Uh, you know, within a, a space of, you know, basically 15, 20 years, you have the nation changing its religion from Catholic to Protestant, then back to Catholic, then back to Protestant again. And every time that happened, you know, throwing one set of liturgical books out and getting another set and then saying, saying five years later, Okay, you lot, throw those books out. We don't use those anymore. Go and get this new lot. Um, so it's it's incredibly complicated. But in the midst of all of that going on, there was always this current within Anglicanism of people who believed that reunion would come one day, um, or that that unity in, in some form would eventuate it in time. So we like to see the ordinary in terms of that trajectory. So you had various movements come along in the history of Anglicanism. You had kind of like the high church movement, um, which sort of predated the, the, the Oxford, Oxford movement. movement. Would that, yeah, would that be then the along Oxford comes the, the Oxford movement. Yeah. And the Oxford movement um, began very much as kind of like an intellectual thing, but it, then it morphed into the Anglo-Catholic movement. So many of the things that we take for granted today as, as Catholics actually came from the Anglo-Catholic movement. For example, um, hymn singing, the singing of hymns in, in a, a congregational or a parish setting, that basically came from the Anglo-Catholic movement. Um, before 1820, it was generally thought in the Church of England that singing hymns was illegal. Uh, or unless they came from an approved hymn book, at least anyway. Wouldn't they be surprised today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's all of these things that we, we take for granted that have actually come from the English tradition. So we are, I guess, a culmination of that trajectory that was the Anglo-Catholic movement and of people within the Anglo-Catholic movement who really yearned for and prayed for unity with the Catholic Church. So in 2009, Pope Benedict XVI, he published this apostolic constitution, Anglicanorum Chaitibus, which literally means um, gathering of Anglicans or on the gathering of Anglicans, on the bringing together of Anglicans. And he very much saw this as a pastoral response. It's quite clear when you read the constitution that he thought this was something that he had to do. He believed that it was, was the will of the Holy Spirit that he as the successor of Peter respond in this particular way. Um, he then goes on to talk about the, the value of the English tradition or the Anglican patrimony and seeing it as something to be shared with the broader church. So we're really recognizing that when the English Reformation happened, most of English speaking Catholicism was lost to the church. 
So recognizing that it was a great tradition, recognizing that even in separation, and this is a very Vatican II kind of idea I might point out, but even in separation, there are still goods within that separated church and saying, hey, these have a rightful place to be shared with the rest of the church, with the whole church, with the church universal, the Catholic church. So Pope Benedict XVI talked about these, this patrimony as a treasure to be shared. Um, that's a straight quote from the document, a treasure to be shared. So that's, that's a really important aspect to, to understand, I guess, the, the cultural reasons for why he felt that it was necessary to do something rather than just saying, okay, here, sign up to become Catholic, but say, no, we're actually going to do something new. We're going to do something that has never been done before because we believe that there is a benefit not only for this group of people, but for the entire church. Because I know so many Anglicans who did become Catholic before 2011, and they just simply had to leave behind the, the good uh, English uh, traditional prayers and everything else in the spirituality and become Catholic and, and just forget all that and join the Roman Rite in the ordinary form. Or, you know, some just join the extraordinary form of the, the traditional Latin Mass. But, but Pope Benedict, this is one of his greatest legacies, I think, uh, that that he made the move to say, hey, you can become Catholic as a former Anglican, keep your tradition, uh, which, which is derived from the Sarum Rite, from English, um, you know, the Sarum use of the Roman Rite, correct me. And, and, and I mean, it's a beautiful, it's just a beautiful move that he made. And, and how many Anglicans took this up in, after 2011? Do we have any figures there, Father? Uh, I don't have figures off the top of my head. Uh, I mean, it is varied throughout the world. So there are three ordinariates. There is the ordinariate here in Australia. There's the ordinariate in the United Kingdom. And there's an ordinariate in the United States. So as one would expect, we uh, in Australia being the smallest um, country, we are the, the smallest ordinariate. Um, the, the other two ordinariates are substantially larger than we are. I think... Um, now, the impetus for people to come over depends also a lot on the historical current. So the, the ex experience of history in Australia has been very different to the one in the United States and to the one in the United Kingdom. So, for example, in the United States, there was a thing called the pastoral provision. And that was set up by um, John Paul II in the 1980s. And again, this is very much a fruit of the Second Vatican Council. These kinds of things could not have happened without Vatican II. They would be utterly impossible without Vatican II. So he created this thing called the Pastoral Provision, which um, set up what were called um, Anglican Youth Parishes in the United States. And, and they had a liturgy, which is kind of like a, a precursor, if you will, to the liturgy that we now have within the ordinariates. But that only existed in the United States. It didn't exist even in, in Canada, and Canada is, is part of the, the North American ordinariate. So I, I apologize to the Canadians for leaving them out before the North American ordinariate. <laughs> I'm sure Monsignor Carlo. <laughs> yes, Monsignor Carl's Canadian. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's it's all it's all very interesting to see how these these currents of history play out. Interesting. And look, look, what did Pope Benedict envision uh, in setting up the ordinary? What did he want to achieve with the conversion of Anglicans to Catholicism? 
uh, is there any particular vision he had looking deeper into his his mindset about it in 2011? Yeah, I, I think um, as I mentioned before, there's firstly that 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 sense of impetus that you can see coming through the text or the apostolic constitution that he felt that this was something that he had to do as a pastor response. I think the other thing that is quite telling is, is the consistent definition that has been used um, since the publishing of that document as to what the Anglican patrimony actually is from a Catholic perspective. And so, you know, from the perspective of the Catholic church, or in the perspective of the ordinariates, we say that the Anglican patrimony is those elements of, of the English tradition or the Anglican patrimony that have nurtured faith consistently for those people, but have not only nurtured faith, but have been an impetus to seek the fullness of Catholic communion. So the initiative was, was theirs for them to seek the fullness of Catholic communion, to say that, hey, we believe the same things that you believe, but we believe that we have something beautiful and special to share with you that can actually increase the arsenal of evangelical tools. So I think that this is one of the reasons why Pope Benedict did this, rather than you know, just saying, oh, you, you, know, you can trot down to your local parish and sign up there is because it increases the means that are available for evangelism. And that's why I say that the ordinary is an evangelical movement, because that's what the mission of the church is, is evangelism. As you know, the old saying goes that um, the church doesn't have a mission, the mission has a church. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it would be similar if you parallel this situation with someone who's, for example, an Antiochian Orthodox, who discovers that, yes, the Pope is the universal head of the church, the successor of Peter, and he has a primacy of authority and wants to become Catholic and is moved to become Catholic in the case of many people. Uh, I know personally, we're Antiochian Orthodox, and, all, and, and they looked at the church. They didn't have to look in their situation to just joining the Roman Rite, your local parish. They had, they had the equivalent option, which is, the Melkite Catholic Church that they could join, which is the same liturgy as the Orthodox Church. So it's not exactly the same in the ordinary situation, but it's the same mindset, I would say, that, that you, know, you don't have to give up your tradition to become Catholic. You can keep that tradition or elements of whatever is uh, consistent with our faith. In the case of, let's say, the Byzantine liturgy is obviously consistent with our faith and, and become Catholic and remain practicing uh, that tradition. I mean, that's that. That's the yeah. beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. Absolutely, and I think it's important to remember too the definition of what Catholic actually means. To to be Catholic means to embrace the whole, to embrace the fullness. So it's not turning everybody into the same thing. It's it's recognizing that we're all different, but the church actually embraces all that diversity, and so we see that diversity also in expression of. Um, and diversity of rituals, of, of rites, of expressions of rites. Uh, it's, it's part of what being Catholic is all about in the one faith. So yes, we profess the one faith, 
But the way that we live that is within that, that plurality that is Catholicism embracing the whole or embracing the fullness. Yeah, and, and that's the beauty of the church. I mean, we have in the Latin rite, we have the forms of the Roman rite. Um, uh, we have the Dominican rite, Carthusian rite. We have the uh, Ambrosian rites, which are all Latin. And then we have the Eastern churches who you have the Maronites, the, the Byzantine liturgy, the Armenian liturgy, the Coptic liturgy, and there's a plurality but it's all Catholic with the same creed. We don't have to practice the same liturgy to have the same faith. And uh, I always like clarifying that for people listening because th there's still a great need for catechesis in this area because you often hear people that see, oh, well, it's Anglican. Oh, this is the ordinary. Oh, this must not be Catholic. Or this is, oh, this is Byzantine. Oh, this must, is this Catholic? Or is this Orthodox? When, when, when there's a plurality of, uh, of ways we can express our faith with the same creed. Now let's go into what lesson can the ordinary actually? Before I go through that, I want to talk about your story personally. Um, you were a former Anglican yourself. I was, um, but I was born Anglican. I was I was raised Lutheran, so I was baptized Lutheran. Ah, okay. And. Um, I talked about some of my story in the article that was in the Catholic Weekly, and I don't want to you know, bore people too much by going through all of that again, but I guess I'd simply say that I, like so many people, I suppose, went on a journey of wandering, of feeling that I didn't really belong mm -hmm. and searching for something that resonated with me. I just wanted to feel like when I went to church, I felt like I was at church. Mm -hmm. You know, I wanted to feel something transcendent. I wanted to feel like we were doing something really, really special. And so I spent a number of years wandering um, around sort of you know, Protestant churches. And that was really, really hard because I've always identified as, as a Christian. And going to church on a Sunday has always been important to me, but all of a sudden kind of like feeling like I'm, I'm drifting, I think it's pretty scary. And so I stumbled across Anglo-Catholicism and it was, you know, I didn't know what solemn high mass was. I didn't even really know what mass was, I don't think. But it was, you know, part of the Anglo-Catholic movement. Uh, and I wandered into this church where, you know, they have solemn high mass there every Sunday. Um, with a choir and pipe organ and hordes of altar servers and incense and you know, smells and bells, they call it. Yeah. And it was the most beautiful thing that I had ever seen in my life. And all these people acting as if they actually believed what they were doing and what they were doing is really, really important, you know, rather than this kind of like casual, yeah, mate, whatever kind of thing that you see in the liturgies in some places. Yeah. Um, you know, here's this bunch liturgy. of people. Yeah, here's, here's this bunch of people doing something that is, it is obvious just by watching them, what they're, they're doing the most important thing in the world, literally. Um, so that... These are Anglicans who are just naturally deducing back, hey, we want to act Catholic, we want to try and be as Catholic as we can, but they're not Catholic. Well, yes, and this is where you kind of like run into the problems of the Anglo-Catholic movement is, is I think you get... You, you can get to a point, as I did, where you basically realise that, well, you know, if I actually believe the Catholic faith, I've got to be Catholic. Yeah. And, and I think uh, I was fortunate enough that 
the ordinariate came along uh, at about the same time that I'd come to that conclusion. How providential. But if the ordinariate hadn't have come along, I, I think I would have become Catholic anyway. Yeah. But it definitely helped in your journey and, and could for some people in their situation could mean either becoming Catholic or not. Uh, or, or looking at the church or not. I mean, this is just another net that we can cast out uh, uh, into the deep uh, and attract Anglicans back uh, back to become Catholic. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and I'd also make the point too that from the very early days of the ordinariate, it was made clear that the ordinariate is not just for Anglicans because its mission is evangelical. Yes, it uses the, the English patrimony as, as its charism, if you like. I mean, you usually talk about charism in terms of religious orders, but we have a charism. It's a point of distinction that attracts people to Jesus. That's what a charism is. Yeah. So yes, there's this point of distinction about us to attract people and who would attracts doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter whether they, you know, it could be someone who's a cradle Catholic um, who has this, for whatever reason, this yearning in themselves for, for something and the ordinariate resonates with them. It doesn't matter whether they've been a cradle Catholic. They can make the ordinariate their home. And, so uh, regardless as to whether they're, whether they're um, an Anglican or, you know, like me, I was raised Lutheran, then I became Anglican and then I became Catholic or, you know, any other Protestant tradition or, or wherever they come from, if the ordinariate is for them, then the ordinariate is for them. I mean, it's, and again, it's you're recognizing this idea of Catholicism that one size doesn't fit all. That's why we have Catholicism. Uh, that's why we have that diversity and plurality, and it's part of the points of beauty of the church. Um, and I think you know, some people have perhaps got this bit of a misguided sense of loyalty, they think of their somewhere and it isn't quite working. They think they've got to beat their heads against the wall and, you know, press on, potentially at the risk of damaging their own faith or maybe even losing it in, in an extreme cases. Wow, that's an excellent point that you raise. That's an excellent and, you know, point. people, I would really encourage people to have the maturity of their own faith to do that self-assessment that if where they are isn't working, then do something about it. I think that is really important, especially when I reflect on, you know, my own journey of my experience of wandering around and desperately yearning for something. You know, that doesn't mean the ordinary is going to be for everybody. It might not even be for most people. That's fine. But we have a particular you know, call, a particular vocation, a particular charism. Uh, and we will be for some people, just as everything is in the church. So I firmly believe that for everybody who is truly searching for Jesus in their lives, there is somewhere in the church for them. Sometimes it's just a bit tricky to find though. Uh, let me, um, uh, at this point, I mean, the observation of my wife, I mean, during COVID, I mean, I, I, I served, <clears throat> I emceed, I was Master of Ceremonies for the first um, ordinariate mass in Sydney, I believe back in St. Benedict's Broadway many years ago. I'd known of the order. I've been to the liturgy and I, I love it myself. But when I had brought my wife, I, I said to her, uh, just, uh, just towards the end of the last year, I believe, to come and uh, experience the ordinary, come and see it. And, and her reaction after the liturgy was, was simply this. And she said, this is what the new rite of mass should look like <laughs> after Vatican City. <laughs> what it saved us. Saved the church a lot of headache had this been 
or something very similar to this would be the new right of mass. Um, and I think that's what many young people's feedback is, is. This is a perfect balance between the extraordinary form and the ordinary form. And you see that with, with, with obviously the Anglican, uh, uh, with the Anglo prayers and uh, the different distinct uh, prayers of English spirituality in there. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I'm sure you've heard that a few times. Yeah, I have heard that a few times before, George. Um, I mean, I guess on the one hand, I mean, I'm a liturgist too. Yeah. Um, so, so full disclosure, you, you know not to argue with a liturgist. But, um, you know, liturgical arguments in the one sense are those kinds of things that you can never win. So, you know, some people will, you know, the ordinary, it won't be for them. They won't like a liturgy. That's fine. You know, there'll, there'll be something for them. That's, that's great. Um, so, you know, you can have all sorts of interesting academic arguments as to, you know, what, what the liturgy after the Second Vatican Council could have been or should have been or, or whatever. You know, those are all very interesting academic arguments. But, you know, we're, we're certainly, certainly no conspiracy that we're involved in or anything. I mean, the, you know, the, the Novus Ordo, that is the, that is the normative expression of the Roman Rite. So that's, that's very, very clear, okay? Um, so, so our liturgy has a, has a particular identity and purpose of its own. But in terms of, I guess, the, the visible identity of the, um, of the ordinariate or any, any group within the church, its liturgy is the most obvious point of distinction. So this is part of the reason why we have a liturgy that is a different expression of the Roman rite. And the most notable point of distinction of it is its style of language. So it's, it's a form of sacral vernacular, a form of sacral English. And I think what most people don't realise is, is that, that modern English as we know it exists because of the English Bible that was translated in England in the early 1500s and the Book of Common Prayer. Those two things, the English Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, really, that is where modern English comes from. And people, they kind of like think, you know, they say that, oh, you know, archaisms, we've got to get rid of archaisms because people don't use those anymore. Well, when William Tyndall started to write the English Bible, People didn't use archaisms then either. People didn't use these and nows. You know, people think that in the 1520s, everyone walked around, you know, greetings and felicitations unto thee. Rubbish. No, they didn't. <laughs> and, and Tyndall knew this. So he deliberately devised a form of English that was different from how people spoke on the street because he knew that a sacral vernacular needed to be distinctive from people's normal way of speaking. So he deliberately put in the these and the vows back into his translation of the Bible, even though they'd fallen out of common use, because that, amongst other things, was his way of having distinctive language. And then, then the same thing happened with the Book of Common Prayer. And religion, the practice of religion, just became so ingrained into people's self-identity that it actually worked around the other way, that it, it, it impacted the language of the street. So phrases from the Bible found their way into common parlance of the way that people spoke. And this is where this idea came from that, you know, people walked around, you know, sounding like Shakespeare all the time, which is not exactly true. 
Um, but it's, it's something really important, I think, to help us understand how the sacral vernacular that we use in the ordinariate fits into the overall life of the church. What lesson can the ordinary teach us uh, as a universal church? What can we learn from the ordinary? I think there's a lot to learn. As a regular attendee myself in my yeah. life, yeah, uh, there's a lot we uh, can learn. I'd like to see it, I guess, in terms of, of learnings rather than, you know, formal lessons as such. Um, so, so I guess the question I ask is, what are the most important learnings that we can see from, from this journey of 10 years or so of the life of the ordinariate here in Australia? And also the other two ordinariates as well. Um, so I think there's, there's that aspect that I already talked about in enriching the church by realizing what's a new way of being Catholic. And so we, we broaden the means of evangelism available to the church. So it's really looking at responding to this question is, you know, how do, how do we do evangelism in our own time? Because we constantly got to be asking ourselves that. Um, I think another important learning is also what we would call the prophetic voice of the ordinary. We're looking at those historical currents that I talked about before. Um, even into the, the 20th century and into the 21st century, looking at the experiences of people who have come from the Anglican tradition or who have come from Protestant traditions. Um, I think that they really have a, a prophetic voice to offer the church in terms of the things that they saw happen in the churches that they came from. And I think this is especially pertinent when we think about the, the plenary council that was recently held uh, here in Sydney. You know, it, it really um, disturbed me, I suppose, that it was quite clear that there were some people there that their vision for the future of the Catholic Church is what we left. They have a vision of a Catholic Church that is essentially Protestant, uh, which, is, which is just an impossibility. Um, so, so I think there really is a, an essence of that, that prophetic voice there. And but also, you wrote, a tremendous, you wrote a tremendous article critiquing this, this erroneous mindset amongst those people in the Catholic Weekly, which people can access. We'll definitely put the link for you to read Father's article. But, but uh, your thoughts on the Plenary Council? Well, I, I, think, um, I think that's an entirely different subject, so I don't really want to get too bogged down in that. I, I would yeah. note other commentators have written some excellent articles that are out there. And um, so I don't think I would really have anything new to say that hasn't already been said in, in those articles. Excellent. Um, yeah. I mean, simply that our, our experience from our journey in, in other Protestant churches is that, you know, you can argue till you're black in the face with, with reason, you can present all the facts and statistics online. Activists don't care about facts. Um, if they have an agenda, that they want to embrace, um, you know, you could you could put the hard cold facts in front of them, saying if you do this, then a bomb will go off under you, and they won't care. They'll go ahead and do it anyway. Um, so so that's been our experience in, in our journey, and sadly, it looks like some people, at least, hopefully, um, a minority, but some people within the Catholic Church seem to be determined to do the same thing, and somehow or other think that that they'll get a different result. Um, so 
yeah, I, I think that's all that I'd say about the plenary council. I guess the third thing I'd say about learnings is is really that we've got 10 years to look back on now in the life of the ordinarius. And you know, this is a new project that nobody had ever done anything like this before. So in some senses, it kind of had to be made up as it went along because it wasn't a rule book. No one really knew what to do. So there's some great learnings there. I'm sure there's it's some a great census fidelium of the people living. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, lots of you know, kind of groups, kind of like coming together, like bishops of local dioceses, the the congregations, the doctrine of the faith, or the DDF as they're called now. Um, but I think this really gives uh, an opportunity to look at um, how things could perhaps be done better in the future in terms of learnings. Because, you know, yes, ecumenism is it's the mission of the church, but we've also got to remember that the thing that Jesus prayed for on the night that he was betrayed was unity. And I think there's a there's a real imperative to work for unity, not just as you know, an, an idea, as a vague kind of a concept that was something that we talk about, but as something real and tangible. And that's one of the things about the ordinariates is you point at the ordinariates and you say, there is unity. There is realized ecumenism. That's what it looks like. So it really sets a, a precedent for doing those kinds of things, uh, but it, it's not easy to do. But maybe there's learnings in our experiences that can help the church with unity because I, I think very strongly that in a post-Christian age, unity is even more of an imperative than it was because how do you describe to someone who knows nothing about Christianity, who's got no idea who Jesus is, how do you explain to them why there are literally thousands of denominations? It just kind of does their head in. And I think it's a serious obstacle to evangelism. So that's something that we really need to address in the life of the church moving forward. Excellent. Excellent. I mean, often I think of the declining numbers in the pews and uh, I mean, 10% of people, 10% of Catholics go to mass many of which do not believe in the real presence of the Eucharist in that, within that 10% bracket. It makes me wonder, how, how do we fix the situation? From your you have such a unique perspective. Uh, you've been on both sides of the circle. Um, mm. um, how do we fix the situation yeah. in the pews, the declining numbers uh, in the pews? Well, I guess I'd firstly say that if I knew the answer to that, I'd probably be the most popular priest around. And I don't know the answer to that. But I do think that we've got more than enough evidence over the past you know, 50 years or so as to what doesn't work. And it really sad, saddens me that you still hear people saying, you know, just do this and you'll get all the young ones in, except it doesn't work. And nobody actually asks young people what they're looking for. If they do, they just ignore what they say. But I think ultimately, you know, we've always got to go back to first principles. And so we've got to do what Jesus told us to do. Preach the gospel, make disciples. So as a church, we need to preach the gospel and preach it in its fullness. I'd like to think that that's what we do in the ordinariates. Some people, I think in the church, they, they think that we should water down our message, make it more palatable, take all the awkward stuff out or even change the teachings that people you know, are not popular with, get with the times. But 
really, George, a, a church that gets with the times, it's doomed to irrelevancy, as the times are only for today, but not tomorrow. I mean, I mean that's, that's speaking to, I mean, some former Anglicans. I mean, that's the exact problem that they had. They had the bells and smells. They had the high church. They had better liturgy, yeah. higher liturgy than the extraordinary form and, and what we can put on. But they're teaching, I mean, they built their house on sand where, where their teachings changed and, and yeah, sure, they threw the teaching on homosexuality out the window, on contraception. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can feel good and believe what you want and enjoy a liturgy. I mean, that's sort of what it became for them. You know, we, we go to a liturgy, enjoy it, feel like community, but it's, 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 it's fake. It's, 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 not, it's not the truth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this, this is the same problem with this, you know, perpetual idea. I mean, I heard the same thing, you know, when I was young and I haven't been young for a while now, but, you know, this has been going on for decades. People will say that, oh, get the worship band in with the electric guitars and the drum kits and you'll have a packed church. The problem is, is that there's, it gives you an adrenaline rush, but when the, when the rush wears off, there's nothing left. There's nothing underneath it. And the same thing could be said about, you know, really, really beautiful worship, which is the point that I think that you've just made about, you know, Anglican worship, certainly in some places. High Anglican, is, yes. Is, is that, you know, it can be very, very pretty and very, very beautiful. But if there isn't a foundation of faith underlying that, I mean, I was fortunate in my experience that there was a foundation of faith underlying that. And that's how I learned the Catholic faith in an Anglican context. But that's probably an exception rather than the rule. So, you know, your foundation has to be Jesus. It has to be the gospel, um, not watering things down, not lowering the bar. And, you know, I've got this, this thing I think of in my head that, you know, in the church, you know, I see the bar kind of like, you know, high, high, high jump bar. Yeah. And we've just been moving the bar lower and lower and lower. And at the moment, it's it's sitting on the ground. And if we put the bar any lower, we'd have to dig a hole in the ground for it to put it in. Um, so that that's clearly hasn't been working. We're not in the business of creating barriers for people. We're not in the business of making them jump through hoops. That's not what the gospel's all about. But people have the right to the fullness of the gospel in its integrity. And I think certainly all the evidence would be that this is what young people want. And I suspect that if you dug a little bit deeper, it's probably what most people want because at the end of the day, we want to be fed, don't we? Exactly. You know, um, our souls need to be fed. And if you need nurturing, if you need nourishment, then you, know, you, you can't do that on bread and water. And you can't do that with spiritual bread and water. So if you give people a wishy-washy -water, wishy watered-down gospel, they will starve to death, apart from not wanting to listen to it. So, um, and I guess this is, you know, one of the challenges that we have in, in our Catholic schools, which, which do wonderful work as schools and wonderful work in terms of education. But I think we've got some work to do in the evangelism department, because I would suspect that most students in Catholic schools, they know lots of things about Jesus, but don't actually really know what the gospel message is. It's very different to know things about Jesus than knowing who he is and why you would want to have a personal relationship with him. So when they become adolescents, they effectively become agnostics at best because they don't have an organic intellectual understanding of the gospel message and who Jesus is.
let's talk about your vision for the ordinary specifically in sydney and uh, we have a beautiful church in newtown and we absolutely love uh love going to mass there and what are some three practical tools for people? I know you're trying to reach out to people to come and experience the ordinary. It may be for you, it may not be for you, uh, for your Sunday liturgy, for and for participating and growing spiritually. What are some three practical tools you can give to people uh, to help build the ordinary and the work that Pope Benedict commissioned in 2011 and that you've taken up and Monsignor Carlo, big shout out to him. Um, the ordinary uh, for Oceana. Um, uh, what can you give us there, Father? Um, I guess firstly, I'd say come and see. That's that's my personal invitation as to people is to, is to come and see. Um, I guess some of the other points that I'd make is, and yes, they do apply to St. Bede's here in Sydney. I think they apply to the whole church as well in terms of the kinds of challenges that the church is facing right now. We probably experience them more acutely in the ordinariate because of our, our relatively small size. Um, so we don't have some of the tricks up our sleeves that say a big geographical diocese might have. But it, it really seems to me that what the church needs right now, especially is, is pioneers. The church is always in a state of flux. It responds to the particular needs and challenges of our time. It's very easy to go into this mode where you think of, you know, all the hard work's been done. The church is big. The church is established. We've got all these all this infrastructure kind of stuff. Yep. Or you go into a maintenance mode where you put all your effort into maintaining those structures that, that somebody built a couple of hundred years ago. But that's not living out the mission of the church that's not living out evangelism now the challenge that we face with the consumeristic mindset that we have that's that's so broad these days is that people just want to turn up to a pre-made parish where somebody else has done all the hard work absolutely now the fact is is that if people have had have had that attitude 200 years ago the australian church would not exist and i think that's a, a very sobering thought that if the Catholics of 200 years ago who built the full church in our land had the attitude that many people have today of, of being consumers, of turning up to something that somebody else has built, there would be no Australian church. So we really acutely experience this in the ordinary because we are something new. We, we literally started something from nothing that had never been done before in the life of the church. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity for people to become involved in church life, perhaps in a way that they had never been involved before. Um, so, yes, this has especially been a challenge in Sydney, because let's face it, in Sydney, people are spoiled for choice. You know, there's there's so many different flavours of Catholicism, if you like. Yeah. So it's it's all too easy for people to go along to something that somebody else built and we've really faced that challenge um, since day one here in Sydney, and COVID certainly hasn't helped, but you know, since day one here in Sydney, it's, it's been hard to get people who want to build something according to the spirit of those first Catholics in our lands. I was thinking, you know, not too long ago, we celebrated that wonderful solemnity of our first saint, didn't we, Mary McKillop? And gee, wasn't she a pioneer? Absolutely. Didn't she get her? Didn't she get around? 
<laughs> just going to all these places all over the country and doing new things and getting excommunicated and carrying on and <laughs> a true you know, so so you know i think we we you know we want to channel channel mary mckillop and so many people like her as well take a leaf out of her book in terms of a pioneering spirit um but look uh, i guess you know coming back to your question I guess I reiterate a point that I made earlier on in terms of my journey. My experience has been, and, and you've probably seen this too, George, that there are so many people out there who, who feel like they're spiritually lost. They feel like they don't fit in or they feel like they're, they're not being nurtured where they are. Yeah. Um, or, or they have in their, in their being something that resonates with them as to what their particular experience of church should be. And, you know, you can argue as to whether that's right or wrong, but for them, that's real. And a pastoral response to that person is to recognize that it's real for them. So it's no use, you know, saying to them, oh, you know, you just got to buck up chum and, and, you know, go with it. Because again, that, that spiritually wounds that person, you know, the church needs to accompany them and, and lead them and help them to grow. So maybe the ordinary, it's just what they're looking for. Might not be, but maybe it is. I, I mean, would there are many people, I, I, I know a handful of people who, are, who attend regular parishes and uh, do not feel like the liturgy or the preaching or, or, or the community is, is feeding them spiritually. These are families that are, are looking for something and, and they may not necessarily resonate with the extraordinary form all the time. And, and they want something that they can intellectually ponder as well uh, through the English. And, and I mean, th th this is an opportunity, a call for anyone listening. Um, if you're in that situation, take action. Come, uh, <laughs> come to come St. Bede's, uh, come to Newtown, St. Joseph's uh, Catholic Church, uh, Newtown, um, which is the parish of St. Bede, the Venerable, and, and come and see. Take action. Yeah. So 12 noon on Sundays is our mass. Midday. 12 noon every Sunday. Which facilitates a sleep in. I mean, it's, a great, it's great if you want to sleep in. <laughs> it's a great time for people on Sunday. <laughs> you can even go and you can even have a brunch if you want to and, and still, you know, meet the fast. So no problems there. Yeah, um, there you go. So, so look, I'd say to people, what have you got to lose? Come along, um, check us out. We might be for you. We might not. You, you have father some spectacular preaching on Sundays. I mean, I'm someone. Look, I, I'll, I'll confess it here. I, I often don't listen to homilies because they often bore me. Gee, thanks, George. <laughs> but but uh, I, I got to say, your <laughs> homilies and uh, <laughs> really engage us. You know, we 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 really you know get down and we really listen and we really engage uh, with your homilies and uh, yeah what, what and, is and it really about former think. anglicans or anglicans who preach well i mean is this yeah and this is it? this is part of our this is part of our charisma it's yeah. one of the points of distinction of of the ordinariate um because of that that current of preaching that came from the anglo-catholic movement you know you think about you know, john henry newman you know, I mean, how many sermons did he preach? How many of them were, were published? I mean, it's gazillions. So, you know, he's a great inspiration to us. Um, you know, back then they preached for hours. Um, we don't do that. Don't worry. If you come to us, you won't have to listen to us for preaching for hours. But I think you will get something that is meaty. I think that you will get, I always try to give something that 
um, explains the readings, but relates it to where the person in the pews is at. So I always try to do those two things. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, any more practical tips for us, uh, Father? Um, I, I think um, just to just to kind of sum up the things that I've already said, really, is that you know while our our history and our charism, so you know who we are, if you like, is is driven by the best aspects of the Anglican patrimony. It's really important to remember that point that that we began with, that the ordinary is an evangelical movement. So people have got to not get tripped up with thinking that oh, it's it's only for former Anglicans. Not true at all. We are we're fundamentally Catholic, and that our charism, which is the English tradition, is is a tool. It's not an end in itself. It's a tool for the nourishing, the building up, uh, and nurturing of the faith. So our mission is the mission of the church. And we're an evangelical movement that is for anyone that we resonate with. I mean, so, just, just the beautiful old English that's used in the liturgy. I mean, for many people who actually attend the extraordinary form, I mean, myself as well, is, is I mean, your liturgy is very, is, it's almost similar to the extraordinary form, but it, just in old English. And, and the readings are done from the ambo and, and there's those different prayers and structures in between. And, and I, I love the prayer of humble access. Mm. Uh, the prayer mm. uh, it, 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 it's just profound and there's so much there spiritually there's a rich uh tradition and and uh, what's your final call for people to come and experience and come and contribute to the life of the ordinary let's build it up because we don't want to yeah. be sitting on the sidelines as millennials uh just rocking up and enjoying the fruits of somebody else because <laughs> Uh, really, that's how that's uh, nothing would have been achieved with that attitude. We have to take action. That's right. And, and Look, I mean, Blind Freddy can see that you know there are some some liturgy wars going on in the church. Um, I think that you know people who are going to sit by the sidelines and and say that we'll just take whatever scrum, um, crumbs are thrown to us. Mm-hmm. Um, or pick up the remains after the liturgy wars are over. You know, I think that's a really a pretty self-destructive approach to take. And so I think people need to be to stand up and be counted and really embrace all of those things that we've talked about this evening, George, in terms of you know the the plurality of the church, that the universality of the church does not mean the uniformity of the church, and especially for young people. Um, because I think I think there has kind of like been a bit of this, you know, either or mentality that that some people think that if they're looking for something that's a little bit traditional, then they must by definition go to the Latin Mass. And that's not true. I mean, um, I love the Latin Mass. I have celebrated the Latin Mass myself. Um, I find it very very nurturing. But you know, if I was a was a lay person, I'd be going to the ordinariate, not to the Latin Mass. Um, so again, it's it's horses for courses and recognizing what is what works for people, but also recognizing that this really is an opportunity to build something very, very special that is very much a fruit of the Second Vatican Council, and to you know say that, hey, look, we can actually move beyond all of these arguments that 
the liturgy wars are about because you know people look at what some of the the arguments are about and they just kind of like shake their heads and go are you for real yeah. you know is, i is think the, I think the ordinary visible? liturgy is a great it harmony harmonizes both liturgies i i, I see there's, there's, yeah. there's yeah. a bridge that's built there i felt i feel that bridge every time you know i'm at mass but um but thank you so much for being with us father here on the catholic toolbox we'll definitely have you back again and uh, I think there's a lot of content here, a lot of meat, as you said, for people to digest and think about and to take action. Come at 12 noon, uh, if you're in Sydney or outside Sydney, um, 12 noon uh, in Newtown Parish, so St. Joseph's Parish to the Ordinary at midday and come and experience the liturgy and get to know the people and get to know Father and uh, Monsignor Carlo, the Ordinary uh, for Oceana. But thank you for being with me here, Father. Thanks, George. Look forward so we can to seeing just you end with your blessing. I'll give the special blessing from the Ordinariate Liturgy. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Thank you for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh. Until next week, God bless, take care, and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Music